The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Welcome to Science for the People. Today we'll be looking at the science of illegal drugs, how they affect us, and what the best ways might be to combat their negative effects on society. Later on, Desiree Shell will be talking with Donald McPherson on harm reduction policies, what they mean, how successful they are, and what evidence we have for that success. But first, let's take a closer look at the effect of illegal drug use on individuals and on our culture. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. My guest is Carl Hart, an associate professor in the departments of psychology and psychiatry at Columbia University. He's also a research scientist in the Division of Substance Abuse at the New York State Psychiatric Institute, a member of the National Advisory Council on Drug Abuse, and on the board of directors of the College on Problems of Drug Dependence and the Drug Policy Alliance. He's the author of High Price, a neuroscientist journey of self-discovery that challenges everything you know about drugs and society. Thanks for being here today, Carl. Thank you for having me. I really love the name of this show, Science for the People. Oh, thank you. We are really quite attached to it as well. So now lots of scientists write books, and many of them are quite lovely, but it's rare that they're as personally honest as yours is. Why did you decide to write a book about the science and policy around recreational drugs in this autobiographical format? Well, I mean, like your show, the title is called Science for the People. And one way that you connect science with people is that you have to have a real good narrative. And for me, a really good narrative is being deeply personal and honest um, because you show the sort of merits of, uh, that a person has and you also have showed the limitation. And so the, the readers themselves know that they have limitations and they know that they have these other positive attributes as well. But I think it's critically important for people to see the con- entire picture of a person and so they can connect with the person. And that's what I tried to do. You know, I don't know how well I did it. Uh, but uh, that's what I tried to do. When we think about science and the drug, I guess the science of drug abuse, um, oftentimes we think about drugs in ways that are magical or incredible, like they're, they're not connected with real people who we all know. And one of the things I tried to do with the book is to show people that the people who we study in the lab are regular folk. Not only are they regular folk, they are people just like me. In fact, they are me. They are you. They are us. And so one of the things I tried to do with the narrative was to show that, hey, I actually lived some of that life. And not only that, my community, there were people in my community living that life. And not only that, there are people in your community living that life. Maybe you too, but we are afraid to divulge such personal information about drugs because there were such heavy consequences associated with acknowledging drug use. Luckily, we have had the last three presidents who have acknowledged their illegal drug use when they were younger men. And so I'm hoping that other people come out of the closet as well. Now, you came back from your time abroad with the military to a full-fledged crack panic in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. At that time, we're talking 1988. Um, At that time, we were really concerned about crack cocaine. Um, And um, 
it was the drug that people said in the community that these young guys were making a lot of money on. Uh, young women would be doing anything to receive a hit, including sexual favors. Um, mothers were abandoning their, their children. All of these sorts of things were being said. And many of the young guys who were said to be selling crack, of course, they were my friends because we were at the time I was 20, 21. And those were many of the young guys selling crack. And they tell me, oh, yeah, man, you can make all kinds of money selling crack. And they tell me these stories about how much money they would be making. And then they go home to their mother's home. They weren't making that kind of money or otherwise they would have their own places. And they didn't have a car. They were just Kids on the corner, maybe selling the little drugs, but certainly not making a lot of money. But I didn't, I wasn't critical enough to really question it then. Um, and that kind of led me to when I was finishing up my degree at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington to want to study drug addiction because here it was this compound, crack cocaine, causing all of this bad behavior, whether it's it occurred in my sort of friends or my peer group or other folks, but we saw all of this bad behavior being attributed to crack cocaine. Um, our movies, our art, all of these sorts of things were saying that crack was the most addictive drug. And so I was going to try and figure it out from a neurobiological perspective, and that's what I set out to do. Now, this I found really fascinating. I think we usually tend to think of the crack panic as something that white people thought about black neighborhoods. But it seems from your book that there was just as much concern about crack coming from within these neighborhoods. Yeah, that's one of the things. It's like um, uh, black folks and white folks in this country and other folks, we tend to believe a lot of the same things. We get the same crappy media, the same sort of crappy education. We're all in this thing together. So if white folks were believing, you better believe black folks were believing as well. And so they attributed many of these problems, like me, to crack, you know, despite the fact that for, so crack didn't hit the streets until about mm, late 1984. The first reports were about December 1984, but it really didn't really take off until about 19, the summer of 86 or so. And so people said that crack was responsible for high unemployment rates. The highest unemployment rates in the United States was 1982, long before crack ever hit the street. And people also blame crack for crime, all of these sorts of things. And when you look at the FBI statistics, for example, the vast majority of prisoners are not, were not addicted or intoxicated during the time of their crime. You know, there are all kinds of evidence that just flies in the face of this notion, but we didn't critically evaluate it because it was a nice story and it was convenient. And it's a complicated problem, particularly when you start thinking about people don't have jobs and the high rates of poverty. Man, those are, those are issues you don't really want to deal with. So if you can blame something like crack, then everybody's kind of emotionally satisfied in believing that they have an answer. And then if you have crack as the answer, all you have to do now is put more police on the streets and get rid of crack. And as we see, crack is no longer a big deal today, and you still have unemployment rate problems, you still have poverty, you still have crime, you still have all of these kinds of things. Uh, but I will say that one of the things that 
happened with crack, with crack, which was very real, is that you had new drug markets, a new sort of product hits the streets, and people are going to fight over the turfs or the market to see who controls the market. That's not u- unique to crack. That happens with all illicit markets and even new markets that are not illicit. You still get some sort of activity jostling for a position. And, but once the markets are settled down and control is established, you don't see this kind of violence. This happened in the late 1970s, early 1980s with powder cocaine. Um, but with powder cocaine, we tended to tolerate it and not, we didn't get as crazy as we did with crack where we passed all of these harsh draconian legislation that we now find abhorrent. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking with Carl Hart, author of High Price, A Neuroscientist's Journey of Self-Discovery That Challenges Everything You Know About Drugs and Society. So uh, let's talk a little bit about crack cocaine versus powdered cocaine, because I think there is still, to this day, a lot of confusion between the two, even though I think this has been talked about a lot. Uh, So is there a difference? What is the difference? Is one more addictive than the other? What's going on here? So if we think about crack cocaine and powder cocaine, um, the, the, the thing that your listeners need to understand is that the pharmacological effects of cocaine, whether it's crack or powder, is determined by cocaine base. Both of these compounds has cocaine base, and that's where the pharmacol- pharmacological action is, only in the cocaine base. But powder cocaine has an additional chemical attached to it, the hydrochloride portion, which is a salt. And it has no biological or pharmacological activity. It's there just to make the compound stable. That means that you can't smoke it. If you want to smoke it, you have to remove the hydrochloride portion from the base. And that's what people do with crack. They just simply, with baking soda, water, and a little heat, you can remove the salt, the hydrochloride portion, away from the base. Now you can smoke it. So there is no pharmacological difference between crack and powder cocaine. What people respond to is route of administration. The onset of effects when you smoke a drug is more rapid than when you snort a drug. And so that means that the effects will be more intense after smoking crack cocaine than snorting powder cocaine. But if you interject, if you inject, I'm sorry, inject, does cocaine, powder cocaine dissolved in water intravenously, you get the same intensity of effects as smoking crack cocaine. They are the same drug. So why then is the perception of crack cocaine or was specifically the perception of crack cocaine as the new worst thing ever? Uh, simply put, marketing. We told the American public that it was associated with this undesired group primarily black people in urban areas in the United States. We flashed on uh, our news programs uh, pictures over and over of some black urban person misbehaving and attributing this to crack cocaine. We saw it in our movies. We saw it in news programs. We saw it throughout the culture. And so that's why crack cocaine has this awful image. This awful image is based largely on pairing it with bad behavior in our in our media sort of outlets. That's it. So can you tell us a little bit about your early research? Um, some of the first things you investigated was what dopamine does. 
Yeah, so my early research, I was I was really interested in understanding uh, uh, cells in a region of the brain called the nucleus secundus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area. The ventral tegmental area projects to the nucleus accumbens, and it's a major region where dopamine cells are produced. Dopamine was thought to be involved in reward. That is, increasing amounts of dopamine was thought to translate into some sort of pleasurable feeling. Of course, this is an oversimplification, but this is how it was viewed at some level, certainly in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and some people still view it that way. But, and, and so I wanted to figure out what was, what, what would uh, happen uh, to these cells after morphine, after nicotine? That's what I was interested in early on. We already knew that cocaine, for example, blocked the reuptake of dopamine. So when a, when a neurotransmitter is released, um, its actions has to, be, has to be terminated relatively quickly in order for the brain and the person to function normally. Uh, neurotransmitters actions are terminated uh, at least dopamine and other monoamine neurotransmission are, are are terminated primarily through reuptake and um, uh, metabolism by monoamine oxidase or catecholamine transferase now we knew that cocaine blocked the reuptake of dopamine and many people thought that this was critically important for uh, cocaine's uh, rewarding like effects there have been some studies that suggested these studies were in vitro in, in sort of slice preparation had suggested that nicotine produced a similar sort of blockade of uptake uh, as cocaine. So this was this is kind of radical and revolutionary. People say, oh, wow, nicotine produced identical effects as cocaine. That's probably why the compound is so addictive. So I did some studies looking at what nicotine did to uh, the dop- dopamine transporter in a live animal, not uh, not a slice, but in a live preparation, and the animal anesthetized initially. Uh, and what we found is that nicotine produced the opposite effects of cocaine. It actually facilitated the reuptake of dopamine and not blocked like like cocaine. And so I was really excited about that because that was going against what some folks was the story that some people were trying to build, and it was, uh, it was uh, the first time that we found that. So I was that was my earliest research. What was the response to this research? Uh, like uh, I guess the response was the same response that people get when they produce data that's not in line with the current sort of uh, story or the major theory, it's ignored. <laughs> so that's what happened. Oh, <laughs> so I also want to talk about how hard it is to get mice to push levers, because I had no idea there's a number of studies with mice and cocaine and lever pushing. So can you walk us through a little bit of that? Um, so yeah, so one of the things that we try to do well, when we think about studying drug addiction uh, or drug reward in laboratory animals, mice, rats, non-human primates, they all uh, serve as subjects. And the thing is, is that we try to get them to self-administer these drugs so we can have, we can do these various manipulations to see how hard they will work to take cocaine or methamphetamine. 
And we, we like to see that these animals will take the same drugs as humans take. And so um, one of my early sort of studies was trying to get rats to self-administer nicotine. And I found it nearly impossible. And most people find it nearly impossible to get rats to self-administer nicotine. But some people are successful, but very few. Whereas a drug like cocaine, uh, it's it's easier to get an animal to self-administer, but it's still not the easiest thing that you can do. Um, when you get an animal to self-administer a drug like cocaine or nicotine, you have to, for example, food deprive the animal, make sure there's nothing else available to the animal so the animal only focuses on uh, administering that drug. If there are other activities, it, it becomes really difficult for an animal to self-administer a drug or to learn to self-administer the drug. This I found really fascinating because I think most people have heard about the cocaine rat lever story, but I don't think a lot of people have heard really the most important part of that story, the other half of it, which is, you know, a lot of the rats who are willing to push the levers have to be severely isolated and are not living as a normal rat, rat is wont to live. But if you put a rat, it seems, in an interesting environment, it's really hard to get them to go for that cocaine. Yeah. Um, well, you know, many of the studies done in laboratory rats you know, the animals are not living in their sort of like natural habitat or the way that they normally live. They're isolated. Rats are like humans. They're social animals. And when you have them in a social setting, it's really difficult to get these animals to self-administer cocaine or these other drugs. And, if, you know, you have things available like a sweet treat, like sweet water, sugar water, or a sexually receptive mate it becomes almost impossible to get an animal to learn to self-administer something like cocaine. Um, so it, that speaks to this issue of, I mean, there are multiple issues here. One of the things is is that we have seen those studies where uh, some researchers present data where animals will self-administer these drugs until they die. But they never tell the audience that they isolated these animals completely, and the only option that the animal had was the lever leading to cocaine self-administration. And they never tell people that when you provide alternatives, even when you've taught the animal how to self-administer a drug like cocaine, the animal will not take the cocaine until death. Just like humans, if, you ha if the animals have alternatives, other things to do, other attractive options, the animal don't choose to take the drug. This, I feel, really goes against the idea that drugs like crack cocaine, if you, you know, you get the story of you take one hit, you're done. You're addicted for life. You can't ever go down that rabbit hole. And this research tends, to me anyway, suggests that maybe that's not the case. Well, if anybody's telling anybody that you take one hit of anything, you're addicted the person who's listening now has a license to stop listening because the person who's talking thinks that the person who is listening is an idiot or they themselves are an idiot because there is nothing that you take one time and you become addicted. Addiction, by definition, requires work. This sounds oddly familiar. Uh, I'm thinking now of the meth scare that has happened in the last 10 years. I'm assuming there are some parallels here. 
Oh, absolutely. As you may know, in the book, there's a chapter, chapter 15, I think it's called The New Crack, where I'm talking about methamphetamine. Uh, these uh, humans, the beautiful thing about humans is that we evolved so slowly. So that means that we only have a limited sort of behavioral repertoire. And when we think about what we've said about drugs, the dangers of drugs, in the early 1900s, compared to what we're saying about the dangers of drugs today, they're the same arguments. They are the same nonsense oftentimes. And so when you think about methamphetamine today, uh, people say, have said, it's the most dangerous drug that we've ever experienced. Oh, we heard that story before with crack cocaine. One hit and you're addicted. We heard that story before with crack cocaine. Oh, no, but you haven't heard this story. Methamphetamine causes you to become unattractive and lose your teeth. You know, so you hear all of these stories and you say, all right, well, let's evaluate that one. Let's think about it. Methamphetamine is the same drug as amphetamine, deamphetamine. Amphetamine is the major ingredient in a drug called Adderall. Adderall in the United States is the number one drug prescribed for attention deficit disorder. A number of people are taking it, and people take it every day. No one's talking about meth or Adderall mouth with people who are taking Adderall and amphetamine mouth. They're the same drug. They produce the same amount of vasoconstriction in the mouth. I mean, vasoconstriction can cause the mouth to be dry, of course, and those sorts of things. And, and when you have a extreme dry mouth syndrome, that might lead to some bad sort of dental work or bad dental uh, uh, it may look as if you, your, your, uh, your teeth are not as healthy, but that would have to be extreme. We get, we get, uh, drugs like, uh, antidepressant medication, all of those medications, they all produce some vasoconstriction in the mouth and cause some dry mouth. But we don't talk about those drugs as causing people to become unattractive and lose their teeth. Again, when we think about these things that have been said about drugs, uh, like methamphetamine, they are largely exaggerations. And this is not to go to encourage people to go out and use illegal drugs, because the use of illegal drugs can be dangerous for a variety of reasons, but oftentimes not what people are are saying that they're dangerous for. And we'll be back after these messages with more of Carl Hart, author of High Price on Science for the People. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and I'm joined by Carl Hart. He's the author of High Price, a neuroscientist journey of self-discovery that challenges everything you know about drugs and society. So you have done some more addictions research since then, and some of it actually involves giving regular users illegal drugs. Um, that must have been so much fun to get through an ethics board. It, um, it really isn't as difficult as people think. Um, the bottom line is this. We live in, here in Western civilization, we live in fairly wealthy societies. 
And wealthy societies should base their education policies and all of those things on good, on the best available information and evidence. There are a number of things we don't know about these drugs. And one way you know, the one way you acquire knowledge is to conduct science. And so we have made it, we've made a lot of policies for these drugs based on little evidence. And what we're doing in our research and other people is we're collecting the evidence that will help to inform not only policy, not only education, but also treatment. And so when you make a compelling case that this information, this science will help inform all of those domains, it's not so difficult to get uh, approval to do this work as long as you have the proper safeguards and experience in place. And we certainly do. We've been doing this kind of work for more than 20 years now. And of course, as we are often fond of reminding people on the show, because I think it can't be said enough, enough, there's really only so far we can go with animal trials. Yeah, you, you know, I think that the animal work and the human work can be complementary. And I think that the animal studies, they raise some really important questions. And sometimes um, you have to take those questions into humans. And uh, otherwise, if you're basing solely your what you're doing solely on animal studies, in many cases or some cases, that might be considered irresponsible. So can you walk us through some of the r- drug research you've done with uh, with humans on these drugs and give us a little bit more information about what you've some of the questions you were asking and what you found out? Uh, an interesting study that we did early on was uh, uh, based on these animal works. So like, like I said, that the animal studies can raise some really important questions. The rat in the cage left alone and has an intravenous catheter hooked up to a lever that they press for a, a cocaine self-administration. That was fascinating work. But we discovered that when you provide the animal with uh, alternatives, they don't take the drug as much. Question becomes, do humans behave the same way? If you bring crack cocaine addicts into the lab, and when I use the term addict, I'm referring to the DSM uh, term, uh, substance use disorder. You bring these folks into the lab, offer them a uh, $5 or some alternative, uh, and a hit of cocaine worth more than $5. What will happen? If you repeat this multiple times uh, over several days, what will happen? Well, what we found is that uh, a nominal amount of money as low as $5 could decrease choice to take cocaine crack cocaine in people who are identified as crack addicts. Pretty amazing when people have had the notion or the belief that, oh, a crack cocaine user can, a crack cocaine addict can only respond to another hit of crack. They will never say no if the dose is nice and it's a good hit. It's not true. If you provide alternatives, we repeated that study with methamphetamine users they perform. They 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 uh, behave just like the crack cocaine users. They took drug on about half of the occasion and money on uh, on the other half of the occasion. But when you increase the amount of money to something like twenty dollars, they almost never take the drug. They always take the money. And so all of these kind of questions become critically important because it tells us that 
it provides a clue about treatment. It provides a clue about the nature of the people who are uh, using these drugs because you say, well, they're responding rationally, just like you would expect. Not only are they responding rationally, but maybe we can develop some treatments that have this as its sort of guiding principle. If we provide alternatives, maybe that will be useful in treating drug addiction. All of these sorts of things have led to uh, various types of treatments. Your book is really an interesting commentary on what the definition of drug abuse, I think, should really be. Because we often think of the term drug abuse as being a technical term about a drug's effect on somebody. Whereas I feel after reading your book, it's a little bit more about society's effect on someone choosing to take a drug. (laughs) Well, I I don't know exactly what you're responding to because that's – well, when I think of drug addiction, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association and also the ICD-10, the International Classification of Disorder, they lay it out clearly what addiction is. It is someone who is endorsing or meeting a a certain number of symptoms, symptoms like People uh, engage, repeatedly engage in the behavior of taking drugs despite knowledge of some psychiatric or physical illness that is exacerbated or worsened by taking the drug. They spend uh, more time than expected or use more than the amount of drug than they initially attended, intended to. Uh, they have given up important occupational, educational, or social obligations uh, for the drug. Um they repeatedly put themselves in harm way, like uh, while intoxicated on the drugs, like driving under the influence. There are a number of symptoms that people have to meet to be identified as drug addiction, as addicted to a drug. So it's kind of clear. That's easy and simple and clear. But when we think about the impact of society on the drug user, oh, that's a whole different can of worms because our response to drug use in, in our countries, in the United States, in Canada, um, has it actually, in many cases, is worse than a drug itself. That's what I find really interesting. And thank you for the DSM definition, because I don't think enough people know what the actual DSM definition of drug addiction is. We really think of drug addiction, I think, from the standpoint of the average person on the street as being a person who takes drugs. If that's the case, I'm a drug addict. So there really is a case here for recreational drug use versus addictive drug use, and that one really is possible without necessarily leading to the other. Yeah, of course there's a case for recreational drug use. And, you know, this is partly why I wrote the book, because the conversation surrounding drugs is so low level that it's frustrating for anyone who thinks Of course, people can use drugs safely. And not only that, but this is not news to people who use drugs, by the way. I apologize for people who are out there and they use drugs. I'm I'm sorry. I'm speaking to the folks who don't. Uh, We all know that drug drug use can enhance human functioning. That's why we go to our physicians and get drugs like amphetamines. That's why we get drugs like opiates. That's why we get a number of other drugs to enhance human functioning in some domain. 
That's why people drink alcohol at many of the boring science parties that we have to attend to enhance human functioning. Because these parties, in some cases, and people, in some cases, are a bit difficult to tolerate. Drink a little alcohol decreases anxiety, makes people a little more interesting. You get through the evening, enhancing human functioning. We all know these things, but we are just not honest about these things. So it seems like, to me, a lot of which drugs we decide to demonize and which drugs we don't, because as you said, nicotine is technically a drug. Alcohol has a drug-like effect, whether or not we call it drug, is about more about who's taking it and what types of stories are being told. Yeah, I mean, as a psychopharmacologist, I am I, like I don't say like nicotine is technically a drug or alcohol, alcohol has drug like fact. They are drugs. In fact, Nick, alcohol is probably the ideal drug. It's a small molecular sort of compound. I think it it weighs something. It's 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 so light compared to something like cocaine or heroin. It's ideal for getting into the central nervous system, interacting with receptors and altering behavior. It, it's, it's one of the reasons that it's our social drug. You only need uh, – uh, alcohol is one of the few drugs that you can take orally, and it gets into the central nervous system, the brain, really rapidly. There is essentially no blood-brain barrier for alcohol, unlike these other drugs like heroin, cocaine, um, and so what's in the blood, uh, whatever levels of alcohol is in the blood is in the brain. That's why we can look at someone's blood alcohol concentration to try to determine their level of intoxication. You can't do that with any other drug. And so alcohol is the ideal drug. And if people are thinking about alcohol in any other way, they are naive or uninformed. Uh, and certainly alcohol can be equally as it can be as toxic as those other drugs and more so in many cases. All of the drugs that we're talking about, heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, none of those drugs you can die from a withdrawal syndrome, but you can die from an alcohol withdrawal syndrome. So alcohol is clearly a drug and it is an important drug in our society. So I'm assuming that you are uh, an advocate for evidence-based drug policy then. I'm an, I'm an advocate for evidence-based anything. <laughs> <laughs> I like you. <laughs> I am on your side, sir. Um, right. right so what are you finding for you? Because I, in your book, you talk a little bit about the struggles of trying to get some of this research information across to the people who can actually use it to make real change. So what are the barriers you're coming up against here? I'm assuming it's not necessarily from the science community. No, the science community actually have they've been a, a barrier. I mean that 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 that's uh I know that's one of the things that you, I'm like you. I initially started off like thinking that oh yeah I know the scientists will get it, but so we can talk about the barriers. And we have to. This will be a little longer conversation because we'll start with the scientists as a barrier. When we think about the area of drug abuse research, the number one funder in this area is the National Institute on Drug Abuse. I wrote a op-ed in the Dallas Morning Star about two weeks on this, uh, weeks ago on this. The number one funder is the National Institute on Drug Abuse. They fund 90% of the world's research in this area. Their mission is narrowly defined to focus on the bad things that happen after drugs or as a result of these drugs. 
That means that scientists are disproportionately looking for bad effects of drugs. Most of the people who use these drugs don't experience these bad effects. Only about 10 to 20 percent of the people who use these drugs might meet criteria for addiction. The vast majority, 80 to 90 percent, don't meet criteria and don't experience these bad things after uh, taking these drugs. But almost all of our science and almost all of our sort of information is focused on the bad things. So even the scientists in this area are misled and, um, or um, their perspective is biased based on the sort of mission of the number one of their main funder. And so that's a concern. And not all scientists, but uh, we, the, your audience should be aware that uh, even the information that you get out of science in this area is skewed toward pathology. That's one sort of uh, uh, walls, one of the walls that you bump up against. And, of course, you bump up the, up against law enforcement, who is deeply invested in making sure that we um, uh, keep these things. Uh, we, we continue to regulate these things in the way we have because we spend in the United States $26 billion a year fighting the drug war, as they call it, the control of drugs, and 70% of that money goes to law enforcement. And so if we talk about changing the way we do any of this, I don't know what changes we want to make, but any changes might cause law enforcement to lose some of their money. 50% of the prisoners in federal prisons are there for drugs, and about a quarter in the state jails are there for drugs. And so if you start to alter anything about regulating drugs, all of those people stand to lose money. And politicians will no longer be able to simply say, drugs are bad, we're going to put more cops on the street, I'm going to do something about it. They can no longer say that. They may have to say, oh, we may have to educate people how to stay safe. We might need to take a more nuanced approach. We might need to actually know what the evidence is. And so a number of people stand to lose. And so uh, as we think about changing how we educate and, and our policies and how we treat folks, uh, we have to also consider the vested interests of all of these different constituencies. That sounds almost depressingly complicated. <laughs> But I hope things improve. Um, do you have any kind of last takeaway for people from your book? If they could only take away one thing from your book or for this from this conversation, what would you like that to be? Uh, the major thing that I hope people take away from the book, from the conversation, is that they have been misled about drugs and what drugs do and don't do. Uh, people should understand that uh, as a scientist, I have given thousands of doses of these drugs to folks. And one of the most important lessons I have learned is that drug effects are predictable. As you increase the dose, you increase the likelihood of getting to of having toxic effects. But as a result, we know how to keep people safe. We just need to share the information with people, and we have not been forthright in doing so. And this is not to encourage people to go out and use illegal drugs. Uh, you already know better than that. This is to say that we have exaggerated the extent of harm associated with these drugs. If we're more honest, 
we could have a better uh, approach that will help m- more members of our society. Carl, thank you so much for being here. It is a fascinating book and a really interesting, relevant topic. Thank you for having me. I really love the title of this program, Science for the People. That's what I hope uh, I help to disseminate, Science for the People. And we've linked to Carl Hart and his book, High Price, on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. After the break, Desiree Shell will be back with Donald McPherson, director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, to talk about harm reduction drug policies. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and with me is Donald McPherson, director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, which is a national coalition of organizations working to improve Canada's drug policies. He's the author of Vancouver's groundbreaking Four Pillars Drug Strategy, which calls for drug policies based on public health principles and appropriate regulation of psychoactive substances. Donald, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the term harm reduction isn't necessarily one that everyone is familiar with. So let's start by defining that. What is, what is it exactly? It's an interesting concept that came, it really entered the lexicon around, uh, issues of substance use, uh, post HIV when the, 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 the primary philosophy of dealing with people with substance use problems was to help them stop using. Post HIV, there was another prerogative or uh, that that really became or imperative i guess uh, was that what, what what's more important to prevent hiv or to address someone's substance use um and clearly if you're looking at an effective uh, expenditure of public resources uh, scarce public dollars you have to come down on the side of preventing um hiv as your primary objective that's when the whole notion of harm reduction started to enter the lexicon of of responding to substance use problems and it really is about trying to prevent uh, deadly infectious diseases as your primary objective and meeting people where they're at addressing their substance use problems Maybe not, uh, maybe so, uh, but that's not your primary objective. And that, in a way, that has be- made harm reduction uh, quite a contentious uh, issue in, in our society anyways. Um, uh, so it's it's a philosophy that uh, tries to engage people, as many uh, high-risk people as possible, uh, work with them to move towards uh, better better health. So if harm reduction strategies... Uh- do aim to reduce risk among drug users. What what are the major types of risks that drug users face? Drug users face a, a wide range of risks. Um, c- uh, catching uh, people who inject drugs are susceptible to uh, um, a, a range of bloodborne infections, including HIV, hepatitis, hepatitis C, uh, and other infections. 
Uh, overdose, uh, death is a, is a serious problem globally uh, when it comes to people who use opioids, uh, and, uh, and stimulants, but prim- primarily opioids. Marginalization from mainstream society because of the stigma of being a drug user. The notion of uh, trying to maintain oneself on a substance such as methadone, uh, which came into the uh, the array of treatment options, um, was 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 something that uh, an advancement in harm reduction in terms of not requiring people to stop using an opioid, but having an opioid as a medicine to treat a heroin addiction. Um, so, you know, a wide, a wide range of fairly serious, deadly consequences, including marginalization, uh, from health services and uh, other aspects of society, harm reduction attempts to, uh, address those and bring people back into engagement with the healthcare system and with, uh, with community, with, with families, etc. Well, of course, if, if it was all risk, then no one would ever do drugs, but that is not the case. Uh, we never hear people talking about the benefits of drug use as perceived by the people who use those drugs. That's right. Most people use drugs for a perceived risk. I mean, a, a perceived benefit, sorry. People don't use drugs uh, because they want to take serious risks with their health or with their lives. There's a perceived benefit that drives people to use substances, and most people who use substances don't develop problems with substances. That's sort of known globally. Most people who try drugs don't develop serious uh, dependencies on them or serious problems with them. Uh, if that if, if that were the case, then we'd have a much bigger problem than we have now. And because of the criminalization of drugs uh globally punitive approaches we've had we we rarely get to broach the issue of uh, benefit beneficial uses of drugs you're beginning to see it more with cannabis now because of the the medical uh qualities you're with with opioids uh you know it's clearly in the downtown east side of vancouver and other major cities in canada you know people are self-medicating sometimes uh medication from the illegal drugs works better than uh, the medication from psychiatrists um so it's a really complex uh you know risk benefit uh discussion that we we need to have in order to move forward and develop sound policies around responses to drugs. Can you give us some examples of, of specific harm reduction strategies? What are what are we using? I always start this discussion with, you know, harm reduction is about relationships. It's about building relationships and deepening those relationships with usually a fairly marginalized uh, person or group of people. Um, and then figuring out what is the best way for that person to reduce reduce harm uh, of their substance use, and it you know harm reduction acknowledges that they the the person who's using is the best advocate for their own reduction in harm. They need to you know be heavily involved in in these strategies. So it might it might be shifting uh, helping a person who lives on the street or in a back alley shift towards better housing, uh, shift towards using attending syringe exchange programs, uh, engaging uh, if they're an opioid user, uh, trying to get on a methadone program. 
uh, in Vancouver, you can, you know, the police have recently encouraged people to use Insight because there's some very strong street heroin out there. So it, it's, it's a range of interventions, but it's also a philosophy of working with, uh, with people. This is Science for the People, and my guest is Donald McPherson, director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. Well, let's use Canada as a case study for a minute. What is our current drug strategy? Well, our current drug strategy changed when the the Conservative government came in in 2005. We used to have a national uh, drug strategy that involved four pillars of harm reduction, treatment, prevention, and uh, law enforcement. And it was an attempt to look at the social determinants of health and begin to uh, respond to uh, individuals, communities, uh, municipalities, uh, regions uh, with a compre- more of a comprehensive approach to, uh, to substance use in Canada. When the government changed in 2005, they, they shifted the emphasis to an anti-drug strategy. So in doing so, they, they, they put the drug at the heart of the strategy. And this is one of the problems with the drug, the whole area of drug policy. If, if, if drugs are the problem, then you have a very narrow uh, array of uh, options to proceed with because uh, your focus is on the drugs as, as opposed to on the society, on the individuals who are using substances, on all of the other factors that uh, lead to problem drug use. Um, the drugs are really, um, in my opinion, neither here nor there. If you remember uh, years ago in Davis Inlet, there were there were people, uh, the CBC crew went up there, found a whole bunch of young uh, uh, Inuit people huffing gasoline right. out of brown paper bags. And these images flashed across Canada, and it was absolutely heartbreaking to see these 11-year-old kids out behind their houses huffing gasoline. And when we saw those images, Canadians, you know, not for one second did people think gasoline was a problem. We all understood that it was all sorts of other complex problems. It was residential schools. It was intergenerational drug, you know, dependencies. It was shattered families. It was a shattered economy. It was colonization. It was all of those things. No one thought gasoline was a problem. Had, had it been methamphetamine or marijuana or cocaine, we would have focused on the drug as a problem and we would have said, let's get that drug out of there. That's what's causing the problem. So get, right from the get-go, we have the locus of our our solution thinking and framing in the wrong place. Uh, and that's what drug prohibition is about. It's, it's about pretending that the drug is the problem as opposed to all the other aspects of society that uh, uh, impinge on people that that leads to uh, problematic drug use. Our current drug strategy is basically focused on enforcement more than anything else at this point. Primarily, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an anti-drug strategy, and it's about enforcement. It's about border control. It's about punishing people who uh, use uh, illegal drugs. Well, people still see this argument, uh, you know, enforcement versus harm reduction as as somewhat ideological. So let's bring in some evidence, if we could. How is the the drug strategy working that we currently have, and and how do we know? 
Well, that's a good question. We don't know. There hasn't been a good evaluation. Uh, you know, drug prohibition hasn't been evaluated. Um, and jurisdictions refuse to do that because, you know, so, so what do we do? We have to find the evidence, uh, in terms of harms. Uh, so we have mass incarceration in the U.S. We have, uh, punitive approaches growing in Canada. We have HIV epidemics. We we have overdose epidemics. Uh, we have lots of sort of negative evidence emanating that we can tie back to that approach. Um, but the we also know that drugs are more available now than they were 40 years ago when Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs. Uh, purity is higher. Price is lower. Um, that's the kind of evidence we have about the current approach. Um Around some harm reduction initiatives, we we can look at the UK in terms of syringe exchange. They were very quick uh, in the late 80s to get out of the gate and distribute uh, uh, syringe exchanges all over Britain, uh, like hundreds and hundreds of needle exchanges. Uh, and their HIV, they never had an HIV epidemic like we saw here in Vancouver or Montreal, or New York. Um, the Australians did a good job as well around uh, syringe exchange, uh, and they pre- they prevented the, their HIV rates from climbing, and to some extent their hepatitis C rates uh, are lower than ours among, among drug users. Um, so there's good evidence that uh, there's compelling evidence that needle exchange works, that uh, opioid substitution therapies work, uh, harm reduction is good value for money. The cost per HIV case averted is estimated to be 100, uh, between 100 and 1000 dollars. So that's a really cheap way to avert a, a, an infection or a disease that can cost between 250,000 and 500,000 over someone's lifetime. Um, and we know that uh, the evidence, again, growing out of the HIV uh, science, we know that laws and policies that undermine access to harm reduction are key drivers of HIV and hepatitis C. Um, so, so we know a lot about the negative impact of our current policies, and there's sort of this willful denial of evidence um, is absolutely... Um, it's criminal that uh, we have programs that work. We know they work. They're not scaled up. They're not available widely. Coverage for harm reduction programs is better in Canada than it is in the U.S., but it's not anywhere near what it needs to be. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with Donald McPherson, director of the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. So even with all of those studies and all that evidence, uh, Canada's federal government seems uh, what can only be described as hostile to the idea of harm reduction, does it not? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's almost as if the prime minister is its one of the pillars of his planks of his strategy is to oppose harm reduction. Um, and here, here's a quote from him on his maternal health initiative that he is getting so much uh, kudos for uh, around the world. Uh, I frankly don't understand people who are walking away in our society from something that's proven to work. 
Um, Harper then offered his advice to those who go off on their own theories and not listen to the scientific evidence. Don't indulge your theories. Think of your children and listen to the experts, he said. He could be talking about Vancouver's supervised injection site, which he has tried to close since he became elected. So that is the, you know, that's a willful denial of evidence that, you know, or the cherry picking up evidence. I'm going to use the evidence around maternal health and tell the whole world they should follow the evidence. But when I have this evidence around something I don't believe in, like harm reduction, I'm going to willfully deny that that evidence exists or that it's not good evidence or the people who created the evidence uh, did it poorly or badly. So so it, it really is a that's why I say it's criminal. It's an abuse of power. It's an it, it's a ignorance uh in terms of uh having an evidence based uh, drug strategy. Um and it's you know, it should not be acceptable uh, to Canadians. Well what's their rationale for their opposition? I've asked uh, several uh, people who have been close to uh, the prime minister's office, uh, and I, they don't know. They just say, well, I, I think they just don't like it. So that's sort of, you know, he, he frankly doesn't understand people who act that way when it comes to uh, maternal health. Um well, I frankly don't understand uh, his position when it comes to uh, saving lives of uh, marginalized people who use substances and, um, you know, need all the help they can get. Well, do you think the biggest problem is that harm reduction is, is largely misunderstood by the public? Yes, I think, uh, I think, um, most people would like people who are using drugs in a problematic fashion to stop. And the fact that harm reduction doesn't necessarily start with that uh, notion um, is is problematic for people. Um, the irony is, if uh, you know the, the evidence we see from Insight, uh, the supervised injection site, is that if you use Insight, uh, you are more likely to go to drug treatment than if you don't use Insight. So harm reduction has a role to play as that low threshold, open door uh, place for people to get into the healthcare uh, system and to even begin to contemplate uh, reducing or or stopping uh, using a substance that they've been using for some time. Um, and that's what people don't understand, that it's not either or, it's not either abstinence programs or harm reduction programs. Harm reduction is just a, a key component to a, a comprehensive system that uh, will give people opportunities to uh, to get stronger, get healthier, and then maybe reduce or cease um, their substance use. Donald, thanks very much for being here. Okay, great. It was a pleasure. If you want to learn more about Donald McPherson or the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, you can visit drugpolicy.ca, a link you'll find posted on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. 
We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.